Bonjour. <laughs> I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Uh, with me today is David Gushy, as always, because this is his show, too. How are you doing, David? Bonjour, Jeremy Hall. <laughs> I was worried something like this would happen. Something um, that if you've never sat in a David Gushy class, something you don't know is that Dr. Gushy thinks he has wonderful accents. <laughs> Why are we talking about accents today, Jeremy? <laughs> because we are entering the part of this season, this series, the book, where we're going to dive into some historical talks and places. We're going to go somewhere. We're going to get in our TARDIS, our ethical TARDIS, painted Kingdom Ethics Yellow, and fly back in time to uh, ask some French questions. And uh, that's an interesting choice, dear ethicist. You wrote a bunch of history in this book. What were you thinking? May we, Jeremy? May we? Um. Okay. So, well, you know, a lot of my work has a, has had a historical dimension. Um. My dissertation on the Nazi era and the Holocaust and Christian behavior. Um, I did a book on the sacredness of life that had a lot of historical tracing of Christian behavior. Um, the Crusades, the um, colonial imperial period, um, early church. Uh, I, I remember my, my teacher, Glenn Stassen, used to say just about every ethicist has an allied discipline that they work with, like bioethicists work with like medicine and uh, economic ethicists work with it, with economics, finance and stuff. Uh, I would say that my allied discipline tends to be history. Okay. I spent a lot of time in history. Um, the historical dimension of Christian faith and Christian ethics is woefully under understudied. Everything has a history. Um, but specifically for this book, as I was developing the hypothesis of authoritarian reactionary Christianity, it became immediately obvious to me that I had seen this script before. Okay. And you saw it in France. Saw it in France, saw it in, in pre-Nazi Germany, but also it helped to make sense of some other countries like right now. And that's what those chapters are about. Okay. Like Brazil and Hungary. Yeah. And uh, uh, Poland and mm, uh, yeah. Russia. So we'll talk about briefly, at least about each of those countries. Yeah. So the plan uh, for these episodes is that they, these history bits will be a little more brisk because we don't just want to tell the story. Um, we don't want to do the historic work here, but I'm, I've got some uniform questions for each of these. Like why France? Why did this instance of authoritarian reactionary Christianity make the book? Well, it was the first major example of it, I think. When um, the French Revolution happened in 1789, it was, to describe it as epochal, as historic, as world-changing, is to understate the significance of the French Revolution. Okay, so that, that is a line. Things are right, different Right, it is a line in threshold. history. There was a before and then there was an after. Um, it was... Partly the failure of the monarch to be able to gradually make the kind of reforms that gradually happened in, in uh, Great Britain. Now they um, had a couple wars about it, too. Yeah, they had their wars. They did. Um, but in the end, the Brits were able to gradually democratize hmm. 
without uh, a bloodbath, um, anything like what happened with the French. But the French Revolution um, ended what was called the Ancien Regime, the old regime. It ended decisively the marriage between church and state, Catholic church and state in France. It ended the monarchy with guillotines. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 broke up the power structure that had existed for hundreds of years. Eventually, it spiraled into um, uh, what's called the terror of more and more and more people getting killed because they weren't quite revolutionary enough or pure enough or whatever. It it was indeed a bloodbath in the heart also, of continental Europe. What in the heart of continental Europe, where everyone right. is sophisticated and cultured and civil? Yeah, it was also a a deeply anti-clerical, anti-religious revolution. Um, they remade the calendar so that the Christian calendar went away. They um, desecrated churches, uh, turned them into stables. Um, they there was an even a kind of a, a cultish dimension where they were worshiping new gods. Hmm. It, it was radically anti-Christian revolution. And it helped, uh, it was so radical that it was inevitable that um, that the, the Catholic Church and the more traditional social forces would, would move into a posture of reaction. It was a winner-take-all thing, it was perceived. Um, either monarch and bishop and jesus and church and the old way or this new radical unfamiliar secular way um and the the revolution was so radical that it really never could stabilize and so there was lots of violence and and eventually it was napoleon who set up a a post-monarch and post-revolutionary autocracy under his like military dictatorship and that was finally how france began to stabilize so i tell the man grabbed it he grabbed it, yeah. Um, I say in the chapter that the French know in their bones the dangers both of absolutist church-state marriage, but also of out-of-control revolutionary violence. But in the end, the French finally settled on a very secular democratic paradigm. It took a long time. It didn't really completely stabilize until, I would say, the late 50s. Okay, post-war. Of the- of yeah of this of the 20th century um so so the chapter describes the convulsions back and forth um between secular liberal pluralist eventually um modernist french uh sometimes rationalist sometimes uh atheist uh, French voices and the voices of tradition and church and throne and altar. And um, the French traditional Catholics ended up identifying democracy and Republican government, that is government that was a republic, a form of democracy, and everything that was ushered in by the revolutionaries, they identified it all as godless, secular, and anti-church. So I say that the traditional aside after the French Revolution was the first major example of authoritarian reactionary Christianity. 
They wanted to go back to the way things were before. They wanted everything back. Everything back. They Mm. wanted the same power structure. They wanted a Christian state. They wanted to reverse secularism. They wanted the children taught Catholicism in the schools. They um, maybe maybe there would be some tolerance for the Protestants too, but they certainly wanted it to be to be Christian. Um, they wanted the Jews in a subordinate place as a as a minority tolerated but not empowered. Um, and so and partly because of the trauma of the French Revolution, the Catholic Church centered in Rome, also positioned itself in an authoritarian and reactionary posture. And so in this chapter, I describe how the popes, all the way up, certainly until the late 19th century, and even after that, depending on what we're talking about, they also articulated a version of authoritarian reactionary Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And they had an army to back it up, too. Yes. Think of everything we're against. Okay, um, and this is also a theme to some extent in the chapter on Germany that's next, but we're against democracy, we're against pluralism, we're against the emancipation of the Jews, we're against secularism, uh, we're against modern capitalism, because clearly modern capitalism is a part of this, but we're also going to be against communism, which develops in the mid-19th century, we're against that too. Uh, we're against religious liberty and disestablishment, separation of church and state. Um, we're against the modern urban world because lots of pluralism and diversity and moral chaos happens in the urban world. Um, uh, what am I missing? I mean, we're we're against all of that. We're and whatever the, the next thing is. What? And whatever, whatever the, the next, next thing, thing is. is. Yeah. We're against freedom of conscience. Um because people are not are not smart enough to know what they should think. They should be told what to think by the church and the state working with the church. Um, we're against moral chaos of all types. We want tradition. Um, that chapter ends with a kind of a the rest of the story type move. Because I argue that, you know, in 1940, um, Nazi Germany attacked France, conquered it pretty easily, and set up a puppet regime called the Vichy regime. Mm-hmm. And they, they governed part of the country directly, but the part that was governed by Vichy was subject of huge controversy because the Vichy regime was authoritarian, Catholic, patriarchal, traditionalist, reactionary and had some definitely characteristics that could be described as at least fascist or fascist adjacent. And, and the Vichy regime cooperated with uh, genocide against the Jews and was more or less subservient to the Nazi occupation and the Nazi regime. Some of the um, people that I talk about in the chapter are figures whose careers and lives were discredited because of their involvement with the Vichy regime. Um, I, I open that chapter with with this quote. What is the truth? This is from a political scientist named Ziv Sternhell. He's talking about the struggle for the soul of France. What is the true nature of the French nation? 
Is it a collection of citizens as the French Revolution would have it? Or is it a large extended family huddled around the church, bound together by the cult of the dead and connected by ties of blood? It was undoubtedly this total form of nationalism, this nationalism of blood and soil, that triumphed in the summer of 1940. Hmm. That is, with the Vichy regime. So I describe um, what I call the culture wars of France. The first place you had real culture wars was in France in the 19th century. The way in which the conservative, the hard right conservative side of the culture wars in France found the Nazi regime congenial because of its striking some of the same notes culturally. It was patriarchal. It was nationalist. It was like uh, agrarianist kind of mm-hmm. blood and soil. It the was folk. racist. It believed Jews should be subservient at best. All of that. Um, and the sad story of the way in which Catholicism became an authoritarian and reactionary faith. I also talk in that chapter about figures like Charles Morat, who struck these political themes, even though they had lost the Catholic faith personally. And here's something that I want to flag for us. Some of the people who we find on the hard right in America today are ex-Christians or post-Christians or not Christians at all. They basically are ethno-tribal, white nationalists who may or may not think that the Christian piece of, of all of that historical identity is important. Um, these are some of the people who I think are have been attracted to uh, Trump. Um, they're happy to call a Christian if they want, or if others want, but this is a loose a loose veneer of Christianity on top of something that is very different, I think. Ethno-tribal whiteness nationalism. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a right. Volk movement. Yes, it's like that. It's a Volk movement. A Volkish, we would say, if we're talking about Germany. And... So I, I say in that chapter that one thing worse than Christian reactionary politics is post-Christian reactionary politics, because whatever moral scruples there might have been on the Christian mm-hmm. side are more likely to loosen when the Christians are weaker. I also, towards the end of the chapter, talk about how this strand in France has never completely gone away, and it appears in some ways to be surging even now, not a majority, but pretty significant minority. So I talk about modern French politics. Um, but let me just read you a paragraph. France's long, difficult struggle with democracy is instructive on many levels. We learn that given the right conditions, profoundly anti-democratic energies can emerge even in long-standing democracies. Where Christianity is involved, these anti-democratic energies come far more often from the right than from the left and they tend to align with other reactionary forces in society. Nostalgia for the medieval world, for a lost Christendom, for authoritarian rule, for the marriage of throne and altar, for cultural uniformity grounded in shared Christian beliefs and values is a very powerful force. But it is a force that is bad for both the state and the church. And so that is why we go back to France. Can I, can I make a personal note here, Jeremy? Of course. My name is Gushy. That is a French-derived name. The original of our family name was Gachet. G-A-C-H-E-T. Gachet. Um, Gachet. So, what? Gachet. 
stop butchering my family name, Jeremy. Okay. So what I have learned is that on my father's side, um, the Gachets were uh, Huguenots. They were French Protestants. And um, in the 17th century, the French Protestants were brutally mistreated under the Catholic regime. So in 1699, two Gachet brothers got on a boat and came across the ocean and landed in Maine. And somewhere in the process, they changed their name to Gushy because they thought that would be a better name. I think Gachet probably would have worked better, but anyway, they went with Gushy. So everybody with the name Gushy is descended from these two brothers. And I remember when I was working on the Holocaust and a Jewish person asked me, what does your name come from? And I told this story and this, this very wise Holocaust scholar said, of course, that's why you're interested in the Holocaust. Hmm. Because in your blood is the memory of religious persecution. The Huguenots were persecuted and they left because they wanted religious freedom. One of the things I argue in the book is if you have a living memory of religious persecution visited upon you and your people, real persecution, not imagined persecution, then you might have a little bit more of a deep visceral commitment to religious freedom and the separation of church and state. We'll get there eventually, but that should be a part of the Baptist culture. It should be. And it was at one time and still is in some places. Mm -hmm. So, so the French story is personal to me in that the historic persecution of the Protestants, um, helped to drive many Protestants into the anti, uh, into the revolutionary side, or at least into support for a change of, of this kind of government. And um, they were not secular revolutionaries, but they were not a fan of the church, the church state marriage that had enshrined Catholicism as the state religion. And also if you, the more you know about these kinds of histories, the more you're, unenthusiastic about anybody who's promising what we really need is a good christian nation again we need jesus written into the constitution and and we need our kind of christians to be in charge it doesn't work jeremy it it creates rebellion it creates secularism it creates dare we say revolutionary sentiments for that like the ones that were unleashed in france in 1789 that is why we're revisiting uh, the, the France from the revolution until about 1940. I think that's a good place to end it. I think that's a lovely place to stop. The uh, As a senior at Samford University, I wrote my uh, senior seminar, a uh, big presentation, on French Huguenot liturgy in the United States. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, because they came here, and they they in some places you can you still have Huguenot churches. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and you know the Le Chambon community in France that rescued all those Jews—they were French Huguenot. There you go. That's yeah. an incredible story in and of itself. Yeah. Thank you, David, and thank you, friends, for joining us today on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. As we continue in this series, the next couple episodes are going to be these uh, quicker, these are a little more brisk, looks at uh, 
some of these historical components, some of these examples from history. We'll look at France, we'll look at Brazil, we'll look at Hungary, we'll look at Russia. Uh, we'll look in the mirror. And um, that, that one might... Mirrors are scary sometimes. So hold on. We'll get there soon and we'll get there together. A reminder to leave us uh, reviews, likes, five stars. Those help this show reach more people. The same is true with uh, the book that we're talking about. If uh, you've got yourself a copy, please leave a review on Amazon, Goodreads, Christian Reader, uh, wherever you do that sort of work. Uh, It helps the book reach more folks and uh, keeps this conversation going. We look forward to hearing from you on our various social medias and personal websites, and we'll see you next time on Kingdom Ethics. Thanks for listening.